Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ashley, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman, Episode 9, Collectors. I'm joined by two child-safe co-hosts, Sean (laughs) and Ben. Hey, hey. On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through four sections. First, we will summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then, we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. We wrap up by offering our final thoughts. And back by popular demand is Bex. Hi, hello, how's it going? Bex is joining us for the last few episodes of season one because we thought she brought such a great perspective and analysis. Glad you have on... My goodness, I can't speak today. Three, two... One. Glad to have you on board, Bex. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this show wraps up with you guys. Thanks again for inviting me back. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Let's get into the episode. Ashley, over to you for the summary. After a little post-murder snack, the Corinthian has taken Jed to the serial convention in order to kill, proverbially, two birds with one stone. Meeting up with Rose Walker and networking. He calls Rose to let her know he has Jed safely tucked away, ready for pickup after a three-hour drive. Prior to this call, Lyda has just revealed to Rose that she has become dream-pregnant, and Rose is suspicious she has something to do with it. Matthew overhears this and, being a good little snitch, tells Lucien, who in response tells the Raven to take it up with Morpheus, as she is merely a librarian once more. Back in Florida, Gilbert offers to accompany Rose as her knight errant. On the way, Rose falls asleep during Gilbert's illustrious conversation on paradoxes. As she sleeps, she finds herself in Lyda and Hector's little acre of the dreaming. Unfortunately, there has been a recent earthquake, and it has caught the attention of Lord Dream, who then banishes Hector to his designated afterlife. After which he assures Lyda that while the baby is real, it it was conceived in his realm, and therefore his, so he will return for it in due time. Very comforting. Meanwhile, the Corinthian has inspired the modern-day serial killer, and here here we see them trade tips, attend panels, and flirt, courtesy the efforts of Nimrod, the good doctor, and Funland. Jed totally obeys the rules of Uncle Cory and stays safely tucked away in his hotel room. Rose and Gilbert sneak into the convention, and they steal the identities of the babysitter and the Dutch uncle. As they search for Jed, Gilbert notices the odd conversations and behavior of the attendees, only to happen upon the Corinthian himself. He leaves a message for Rose at the desk, stating he needed to hoof it back home, and reports to the Dreaming, where he expresses anxiety at the idea of Rose being destroyed, vortex or no. Back to the serial killers. There's an imposter at the con. A blogger has snuck in opposing as the boogeyman, who the Corinthian knows for a fact was drowned three years ago. All of the con organizers, save Funland, dispose of the blogger at the Corinthian's invitation. 
Jed stumbles upon the act and flees into the arms of Funland. Before Funland can play with Jed, Rose finds him. The siblings' reunion is cut short by Funland, only for the Corinthian to cut short Funland. The Corinthian promises they are safe with him, and we cut to black. And that is literally everything that happened in today's episode. <laughs> Ashley, do you refer to the Corinthian as Corey in your notes also? Because I definitely do. Do you really? Yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Do you spell it C-O-R-I? I oh, do. No. Oh, I spell it C-O-R-Y. Just to make it like okay. more approachable. Because <laughs> he needs help. It, would, it works as a nickname. It does. It does. He seems like a Corey. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Ashley, for giving us quite the extended rundown there, as there was quite a bit happening. Bex, you're still the guest, so you get to go first with your hot take. What you got for us? I feel like I'm cheating by going first, uh, but hot One take. more week. One more uh, week. Yeah, this is the, yeah, i got to milk it while I <laughs> can. It. Get it out yeah, of the way. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, right. Next <laughs> next time, it's it's all over. Um, I the, My hot take is that there would not be that many socially like apt people at a serial convention or serial killers invention uh, convention is just too much. Like I get that some of them might like be good at putting on the facade, but for me there was not enough awkwardness or tension between like the mixer and the different panels and um, just all the little, the little trainings and topics they cover. I just felt like people were way too like they weren't socially awkward enough for for me to buy it but also i think the convention itself was a lot um but that's that's my hot take is that no one would be that that socially normal sorry i mean no one's that socially normal at any convention <laughs> you know any that's convention. a really great no matter point. what <laughs> yeah like i'm not a serial killer and i feel really clammy at conventions myself so that's an excellent point <laughs> There was almost there was no one who was just like sitting in a corner by themselves, just staring at their phone the entire time, which is like, I did not feel seen or represented in any of these scenes. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they're all going to get con cred after that. I agree with that. I agree with that hot take, by the way. That was one of my kind of issues in a in a previous episode we did when they first introduced serial killers, uh, the collectors. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, Sean, how about you then? What's your hot take? Well, okay. So I I just wanted to pause for a second and focus on the concept of the vortex and just make sure we're all on the same page of like what a vortex is and what it means because in the in the comic book version, the vortex is a pretty straight up like MacGuffin. You never really question it too much. It doesn't really matter that much. It's just something to motivate the plot. It's wrapped up pretty quickly. Um, but here in the Netflix version, it has a pretty big and continuous impact, the existence of this thing. So I'm just going to go through what I have gotten from it. And you all tell me if I'm missing anything or if you've interpreted things differently. So it's a naturally occurring phenomena that may or may not be tied in some way to the presence of Morpheus himself, kind of undecided there. It is, there's one in every era. We don't know how long an era is. It can be a person, but it seemed to imply that it's not always a person. Because they noted a few times that this vortex was a person. Functionally, it weakens the boundaries between 
dreamers and between the dreaming and the waking world. It's capable of, through this sort of thing that it does, damaging both worlds. And it, because of that, Dream is authorized to deal with it by any means necessary. So if it means taking a life, you can take a life. Totally cool. Not a problem. And for Rose, it means that she can find pretty much anyone she wants and go anywhere she wants in the dreaming. Does that about sum it up? Am I missing anything there? No, that sounds about right. Sounds good to me. Okay, yeah. I, I just wanted to be, because it's it really is much more central to the events that happen than it is in the Doll's House comics storyline, but it's not necessarily explained in any more detail uh, than it is in the comics. So that's kind of an interesting balance to watch. I wonder if that it's going to be expanded on in the last episode at all, really. But yeah, okay, so that's 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 a pretty, uh, you know, all right. pretty mild hot take, but that's that's what I wanted to just kind of get out there and make sure everybody's on the same page. I like it. I like it. Uh, Ashley? You guys, like, the Corinthian is really good with kids. <laughs> <laughs> so attractive. And I'm not, I was just going to say, I'm not saying it makes him more attractive, but it a little bit makes him more attractive. It doesn't make him less attractive. <laughs> that's very true. That's very true. Um, that's that's like a, a, a mini hot take. The, the real hot take is that I... I have yet again a complaint about atmosphere or, or place setting and the hotel with which they're having or motel. It's supposed, I mean, I was imagining a motel, but the location they have, the conference feels almost too clean and too bright and too airy. And I just don't believe you would have like any sort of, you know, networking, um, sort of career conferencing type event at a place like that. It almost feels like there'd be too much going on. It seemed too busy considering that there was also a convention going on. It felt like there were a lot of just normal people there on top of a whole wing being cut off for this very dubious convention. So just the whole setting in general felt a little more like white Lotus as opposed to serial convention. I don't know if you guys have watched white Lotus at all. It just, it feels like everything that was present was too polished, too nice, too clean. And I was missing the, the grittiness that I've complained about in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was an atrium, right? There was that indoor <laughs> yeah. like yeah. courtyard that had like plants and a ton of natural lighting. And I was like, I've never seen this at a Days Inn or even a Hilton. <laughs> what is yeah. this? Yeah. I was expecting much more of like a Holiday Inn Express kind of vibe. Yes, exactly. I was I was expecting to see at least one stain on the carpet, and there wasn't a single one. Housekeeping has done a really good job. You know, I had that same note, and I think the object of parody has shifted a little bit uh, because in the in mm-hmm. the comic, it is much more dingy, like highway roadside hotel that you would like believably find in southeastern Georgia or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I think that was very much parodying like those little comic book conventions that you'd see at the time, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. you had like, for example, they call themselves collectors, right? Like, right. I mean, not too far off from comic book collectors, uh, is definitely a, a weird little gathering of strange folks. Um, 
the atmosphere was not, you know, it really did kind of capture like what those little conventions were like in the, I mean, I wasn't going to them in the late eighties and early nineties, but even in like the mid nineties, it was kind of like that. And that doesn't seem to be kind of the, the, the object any of, of the TV adaptation. It seems more like it's become a professional conference, right? Not like the, Mm-hmm. Not like the kind of comic book convention that they originally were, but now it's sort of doing this professional conference thing. And that's a tough transition to make for mm-hmm. what are supposed to be like, you know, socially isolated, like psychopaths, right? Like it's just, it is hard mm-hmm. to make that leap into mm-hmm. buying this very polished, very professional air that they pretty uniformly gave gave off. Yeah, I just I kind of wish that they had turned the corner a little bit harder on making it almost influencer culture as opposed to like a professional conference like we're doing mm. little mini TED Talks. I feel like that would have applied better into the oh, that would have been good. psychotic nature like that. of their work. Let's hold that for when we get to the convention in our scene by scene breakdown. Okay. Uh my hot take will be very quick. Um I want the I'm glad the Corinthian is bringing back the proper way to lick an ice cream cone. (laughs) I was like, wow, why did I never think to turn the cone? I didn't want to talk about it. (laughs) The way that he did that. And then I know how he says so fit. He licks it maybe 10 times and then tosses it. He's like, I'm just going to get the maximum amount of pleasure. And then as soon as I have diminishing returns from pleasure versus calorie intake, I'm done. (laughs) That is how you do it, everybody. That's how you say that fit after hundreds of years. I had no idea. I'm over here eating the whole ice cream cone and then going for a run afterwards. I, I never knew. I never knew. Wait, so he turns it, right? As he like eats or the... Yeah, yeah, he kind of... Yeah, that's what yeah. I do. And it's just the outside. He doesn't like right. go up and doesn't make a little... Except I eat the whole thing. Let, let me just... just yeah. <laughs> Not, I would, especially soft serve. Do you know how much discipline it would take to throw out a soft serve ice cream? Absolutely. This is literally the Gosh. only unattractive thing about him is that he doesn't yeah. finish ice cream. It's <laughs> <Just laughs> wasteful. <laughs> He's just trying to keep it fit for everybody so we can appreciate that. So, but uh, the four of us are going to go eat some ice cream like the Corinthian and we'll be right back. All right. So let's dive into our scene by scene breakdown. Firstly, Rose talks with Lyda about the dreams that she is having and learns that Lyda got dream pregnant in the dreaming. That's where you get dream pregnant. Matthew reports this back to dream, and there is much concern. Jed and the Corinthian are on their way to the cereal convention and have stopped to eat some ice cream and have a nice chat. The Corinthian calls Rose, and Jed tells her, that they are at the Royal Empire Hotel in Georgia, about three hours away. Gilbert comes down and learns that Rose is about to drive to Georgia solo and offers himself as a knight errant on her journey. Ashley, what do you want to start with here? I, I, I've mentioned my difficulty in believing in Lyda and Rose's friendship. And I feel like we had a really good discussion about the different types of friendship we see in this series overall. And that was really helpful for my own sort of suspension of, of disbelief in this case. But 
I feel like this was a really good example of the performance of their friendship that I just didn't believe. I didn't feel like they were connecting. They're talking about two completely different phenomenons and light is so in her dream pregnancy and fixated on everything that's happening in her world. She's like totally losing scope of the big picture, which I can't imagine how you would feel being dream pregnant. Be again, I think, you know, Bex and I talked about this would be kind of horrifying. Um, but she's so stoked that she just can't, she's not hearing anything else. Um, and so it was just hard to watch that disconnect between her and Rose, um, with two major plots happening and just again, not connecting, though, though they are connected by this weird sort of dreamscape disruption. Um, so I just, I, I found myself getting really irritated with Lyda the entire time. She's very... Just like, look, let's focus. <laughs> She's very much like, Rose is like, okay, I had this dream and it led me to my brother. And then I went to where the place was and a bunch of people have died. And Lyda's just like, okay, I believe you, but can we talk about my thing now? You know? Like, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She felt like Christian, Kristen Wiig's, like the one-upper skit from SNL. <laughs> I was just like... I can't, I don't like you and I should like you, but she had that really dreamy look on her face. Like, like some like stereotypical, like pregnant women get where it's like, look, I'm glowing. I'm like, you're glowing with lies. Like, I don't really know what to do with this. You're making me uncomfortable. So I found, I found that encounter difficult. Um, and maybe it was supposed to make me uncomfortable in that case. You know, maybe it was supposed to feel like a disconnect intentionally, but even the performance, um, uh, was was just like hard to to get into uh, personally. I don't know how you guys felt about Lyda. Well, you know, I just kind of, I kind of wish Lyda were less put together. You know, like mm. mm-hmm. she is kind of off in her own world, but she's still playing it the same way as she has played her character throughout the show so far. Like she just doesn't, it just doesn't come off as someone who's having a really tough time. Like someone whose life has gone so downhill that escaping Mm -hmm. into like a dream fantasy is preferable to real life. Like that's where her character should be you know and and it and she's she's just like the same old Lyda that we met a couple episodes ago um I mean there's so many questions that aren't asked here like what happens to her body if she stays in a dream forever um you know is she basically gonna end up like Rachel Joanna Constantine's girlfriend from yes episode three and you know what happens to the baby is it like half ghost and half alive or half ghost and half dream and like like there should be a lot of immediate questions like someone like rose right like rose's character is very much like worrying about all the things all the time and what it just doesn't seem (laughs) seems pretty implacable um and i think that's to the show's how is she so successful yeah yeah (laughs) right (laughs) yeah so i i completely agree there yes so moving away from Lyda, Bex, what are your thoughts here on Gilbert offing himself up as a knight errant? I love Gilbert. He's one of my favorite characters. Again, I, I've never read the comics, so I don't know kind of what his involvement is in that aspect. But just everything about him is so comforting and warm. Um, I love the way he dresses, the way he 
inserts himself, but he's maybe he he makes it so easy for her to say yes because he's like, oh, it'll make me feel better. Like, let me pretend to have this and be this because he just cares so much about Rose. And there's there's just I mean, there's just a goodness to him. I think that's the only way to really describe it, where he he's not ignoring bad or hard things. And I think you see that later when they're in the car in a different scene. But he um, he's just so lovable and warm and, and he, but he's big and tall, too. And so I just really love him. He's, he's definitely got that kind of like maybe not father figure, but like fun uncle kind of energy. Um, and I just I really enjoy him in this episode, especially uh, there's. Yeah, he's just got a pure heart. We love it. We've got competing uncles here, don't we? We've got. We got Uncle Corey, who's definitely like fun uncle, like do things that like your parents wouldn't let you do fun uncle. And then we've got like sort of whimsical, joyful Gilbert fun uncle who like still wants you to be safe. And these are the uncle archetypes that Neil Gaiman is just clashing against each other, you know. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Uncle Gilbert is the kind of uncle that would still give you crisp two dollar bills. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Ugh. He's always got candy in his pocket, but it's like, you know, oh. um, like the Werther's. strawberry candy or like oh, yeah. Werther's Originals. Um, we're opposed to, I feel like if you wanted to like smoke, you'd be like, hey, Uncle Corey, yeah. like, <laughs> what's up? <laughs> Can I have a pocket knife? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> you go to the flea market. Yeah. Yeah. Go to the flea yes. market with both of them, but come back with very different items from the flea market. Yes. Like, I knew exactly which of my relatives to ask for, like, a samurai sword from the flea market when I was a kid and which (laughs) not to. Uh, But I I, I totally agree. Also, like, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a great character and a great actor to play the role. I loved that line where they're driving and uh, and Rose is like, oh, and uh, home is England. You sound English. And he's like, thank you. (laughs) Like. Because it's, it's totally a put on, but he's like, you know, feels he's being complimented for his performance of being human, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I also right, right. really liked the, you know, Gilbert's talking about uh, the kind of goal of travel from his perspective being stepping, you know, returning to your home country or setting foot in your home country as a foreign land, right? And then uh, Rose is like, so it's all about going home. And he says, yes, I suppose it must be. And he gets this very complex uh, sort of wistful look in his face as, you know, from what happens later on the episode, you realize that he's thinking about inevitably having to return to the dreaming. But the fact that that plays across his face subtly and briefly was like what I hope to see out of this show. Those kind of little moments like that. Yeah. All right. Let's take a look at our next scene. Lyda is back with Hector, and they are interrupted by an earthquake, or maybe it's a dreamquake? Back with Dream, Merv lets him know that there has been some seismic activity in the dreaming. Dream seeks out Lucien to get her guidance, kind of. Unity begins to make plans to have Jed and Rose fly to London and possibly stay there. The Corinthian leaves Jed with cartoons, chicken tenders, and a warning not to leave the room. Jed decides to look around the hotel against his advice. Bex, where would you like to start us with? Ooh, so 
One thing I noticed when I was watching this episode is what Jed's watching on the television uh, in the hotel room, which I know is at the end of this scene, but he's watching Static Shock, which is was one of my favorite cartoons growing up. Um, so that was really, really neat. I loved that they had that in the episode. Um, also, Dream continues to be... I, I don't know if I can say this word, but Dream continues to be a little bitch in this episode. Like, <laughs> he is... <laughs> He's like not, yeah, I feel like he needs to go to couples counseling with Lucien. <laughs> not that really Lucien needs to be there, but he needs to hear it and by a third party person. Um, so that's really annoying. The other thing I'm really curious about are the legal um, implications of trying to, of Unity trying to adopt um, Rose and Jed. Like, what is that process like? How does that work with like, well, Rose is an adult. So is it really like how how do, I have a lot of questions about how that translates from America to England and what mm. the implications are and what the fees are like for that and how long that process is. And if she's got a lot of money, how fast will that go? Do they get citizenship? Um, just, like, do they have UK citizenship what, then? What happens? Is it dual citizenship? Like, what is happening? Exactly. Exactly. I want to know. These are the um, questions. These are the questions these, we need answers. These are the to. questions that people are thinking about when they watch this show <laughs> is um, how does custody in different uh, countries work? Um, I know that's just riveting for everyone. Can you but, adopt a yeah, 21 year good... old? Like, isn't Rose 21? No, there's no way. Because she says right. that. She's like, Rose is like 21, 22. And Unity's like, I want to adopt them both. I'm like, homegirl, she's an adult. Like, how? what is it, an adult age over in England? You think it'd be like 16 because they're like, hey, kids, you know, drink some beer or whatever. But I don't know. There's a lot going on. I, I That's not, I know I just touched on, that was like a pinball machine of answers, but that's what I'm sticking with for this one. I love it. I love it. Uh, Sean? I am going to retrace my own footsteps here and just say I love the animation on Mervyn Pumpkinhead so much. I just, mm. you know, we're very lucky to have that character here, to have it well done, to have him voiced by Mark Hamill. It just works so much. And I loved that scene in particular where uh, Merv is looking for Lucian and finds Morpheus because it just illustrates how nobody likes Morpheus. Like, <laughs> not even his own dreams like him. Like, they bailed the first chance they got. Uh, Lucian, I, like, genuinely believes in him but is, like, pissed off at him at the time. It doesn't want to, you know, is, like, willing to just be like, fine, you take care of it. And then... Uh, Merv comes in and like doesn't really want to report directly to him at all. He's like, like the boss. That's just bad management. Yeah, right there. bad management. Because <laughs> yeah. he's yeah. very like aloof and it's like, okay, well, I need to actually get things done. I can't talk to the guy in charge. I need to talk to the person beneath the guy in charge. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the fact that you get that perspective, you know, Merv is an is uh, along with. Matthew, to an extent, is supposed to be a kind of everyman character, right? And it's supposed to give you this perspective on the day-to-day -day operation of the dreaming that you wouldn't really have from anyone else. So I love the fact that you see that actually most of the people who work for or most of the beings that work for him are kind of freaked out by his like moodiness and his willingness to banish you into the darkness and just would prefer to give him a wide berth. I like the way that that fills out the world and the and the, the relationship dynamics within it. Ashley? 
Yeah, I I do, to echo Sean, love the office politicking that's happening because I agree it does help give us some scope on the dreaming and how it functions. And, you know, when when we're first introduced to the dreaming, it looks like this magical, constantly expanding fantasy land, beautiful, majestic. And then when it comes down to it, it really is just a bunch of office politics. And, And I've definitely, I've been... Merv before and I've been Lucienne before so I really resonated with her the ways that they were trying to navigate everything um and I really love how Mervin is is animated like there's there's this I don't know what the frame rate is on his mm. facial expressions or what but it it feels somehow partially CG and yet still somehow like partially practical yeah. effects. So you actually feel Definitely. like he's in the room. Yeah. It Definitely. doesn't feel completely separate. Uh, like it's not and, Mark Hamill standing there with like a fake pumpkin on a stick. Like, right. You know, right. with mocap on him. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And yet I still trust, I, I, I believe in Mervin way more than I believe in Lyda actually, <laughs> as far as facial yeah. expression is concerned. <laughs> Maybe, maybe, maybe Lina's the one in a mocap suit, but, um, but I, I really did love, uh, love that exchange. Um, and just the fact that we do have, as Beck said, a dream, just being mopey and trying to get it done, but really being just the muscle memory is gone on fixing these kinds of problems, but he's just too stubborn to admit it yet. Um, and so he tries to go around it. It is like mom and dad stop fighting and just, just take care of things. Like let's put the house in order. Right, right. Uh, but I do love that we're having that conflict and that we're getting, you know, Lucienne as a character, a little more fleshed out and, and seeing some more, I don't want to, I don't want to say desire because that's an actual function in this world, but we're seeing, seeing some motives here that I appreciate that Lucienne is more than just as we're seeing a librarian, you know, Sean, you had brought this up at one point, but maybe the reason that Lyda always, always just looks so good and put together, maybe that's the superpower that she inherited, you know, as part of her, like, you know, on her maternal side uh-huh. of things. <laughs> right, right. Because isn't like, isn't she like the daughter of like Wonder Woman, like canonically in somebody else? Yes. So maybe that's just like, that's Ugh. the thing she got is just like. I look amazing all the time. Yeah, that's what I she got from Diana. She is so the... much money on hair care products. Yeah, so she, so she is. Her character pre-existed uh, Neil Gaiman's usage of her, and she is canonically the daughter of Earth Two Wonder Woman and Steve mm. Trevor, uh, and then she became a superhero with her husband Hector, uh, and they were, I think, members of a group called Infinity Inc. as the Fury and the Silver Scarab. So that uh, uh, they were they were both adventuring superheroes in the comics. Understandably, something that was not included in the TV show. Wait, we still have one episode left. Maybe that's what we learned. Like they're all this. Maybe this is we're trying to get some cross pollination of like Justice League and multiverse in the DC. Uh, you know the DC EU. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Black Adam's gonna show up in the finale. <laughs> that'll be the cliffhanger of the season (laughs) i feel like we've done way more planning than they have on the direction of the dc (laughs) i think the only other thought that i had is 
I mean, I've never lived somewhere where earthquakes are a thing, but I feel like if there was an earthquake here where, where I live, I definitely would do more than kind of like walk about five feet outside my door and kind of glance around and then walk back inside to see if there's any damage. I'd do a bit more of a thorough investigation of structural supports and, you know, groundwater and like main lines and things like that. I was just, I felt like that camera didn't pan back too far, you know, definitely still within like light walking, like light after dinner walking distance. If they could have seen that happening. So that's kind of on them. That's on them. That's my take. They, they also know they are in the dreaming. Why would they not then consider the fact that literally anything could happen there. I would be looking for giants. I would be looking for trolls. I would be looking for like, you know, sand snakes. I don't know something like I. Tremors. Yeah. Maybe tremors yeah, showed up finally. And, and maybe that exactly. that's it. There's just not enough like questioning what's going on. Like I love the stories where something weird happens and then someone tries to figure out everything about it. Like I always think of like. Do you ever see Poltergeist, the movie Poltergeist, right? Yes. And, yes. And uh, the mom, you know, uh, is sitting there and she's got all these, like, the all these diagrams drawn out on the floor with how these uh-huh. chairs move of their own volition or something. Like, to me, like, that's how a person acts when something crazy happens. You know, like, try to figure it out as best you can. And nobody's trying to figure anything out. I think there's two reasons why I find it believable that they're just like, meh. Number one, they were pretty preoccupied <laughs> prior to the earthquake. So, you know, like they got other things on their mind. But number two. Sorry, how good can that be? Anyway. <laughs> it can't. But um, <laughs> no. uh, but the other thing is that, um, shoot, what was I going to say? Oh, have you guys ever just ignored your problems? It is so fun until it's not. Uh, that's like, true. That's, that's what she's point. doing. She's She's burying her head in the sand. She's not questioning She's ostriching. You go with the flow. Yeah. You just ride that way for as long as you can, even though you know when you wake up from it, it's going to suck. And she's hardcore doing that here. And Hector's like- I cannot resonate with that at all. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's a special type of procrastination that really Mm. screws you over in the end. Um, But that's. I think that's what she's doing here. I I think that's- I can relate to that of like, I'm not doing the adult thing and I'm just not questioning it and I'm going with mm. it. I like it. Well, let's take a look at our third scene. Nimrod opens the conference with some classic pre-conference updates and introduces the Corinthian as the unexpected guest of honor. Rose falls asleep in the car and visits Lyta and Hector at their dream house. Dream is also there to, quote, fix things, end quote. This entails sending the ghost of Hector to the Sunless Lands and letting Lyda know that she can keep the baby for now, but he will eventually be coming back for the baby. Morpheus attempts to end the dream, but Rose follows him back to his throne room and threatens to leave and threatens him to leave her and her friends alone. Sean, what do you want to grab out of this chunk uh nimrod's joke sucked so bad it was so bad oh gosh like why what mm-hmm. so occasionally i'll complain about the show's over devotion to adapting dialogue mm-hmm. from the comic i think it's totally fine to do something different to have characters say something different 
it's a different time, it's a different medium, like, go ahead and take chances. So, I would have really hoped that they would have just left that out, especially because the if there is anything interesting about that moment, it's because in the comic, you are seeing Nimrod's uh, internal monologue where he's freaking out and nervous about how the audience is going to respond. So he's sitting there like, oh, you better laugh. You, you laugh, laugh at my joke, you know? And that is something that's like kind of interesting and relatable. And it's like, these people are all crazed serial killers, but they're still like nervous about public speaking. So it kind of works a little bit in that context. But when you have just this, it just doesn't work at all. It's just a bad, ugly joke. Um, so I kind of wish that had been left out. The other thing that I, well, actually, I'd kind of like to leave it to you guys because I know we're going to get to Dream and, and Lyda and, and Hector face off. So I'll, I'll comment when you all go there. Well, Ashley, why don't you take us there? Way to not have any emotional intelligence whatsoever, <laughs> Dream. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I feel like he keeps learning this time and time again. There's just no bedside manner, no nothing, no preamble, really, even. He's just like, you're not supposed to be here. Boop. And even in the most grotesque way possible, he could have just blipped him out. But instead, he makes Hector's, like, entrance into his, desk, like, his determined afterlife is being this like really horrifying, slow, painful transition of him turning like completely skeletal and drifting off into the sunless land. It's just horrifying. So that was one case in which I actually felt for Lyda for the first time, because I can't imagine what it would be like to stand in front of even Dream Husband and see like there could have been a better way. There could have been a better way. Um, and I, I also found that Lyda's greeting of Rose into her sort of dream acre, as I'm just referring, I'm choosing to refer it as, uh, was funny because they're walking past all of those fissures and earthquake cracks and stuff. Why would you not, as we've kind of established, why would you not explore that more? I think even from a distance, you kind of see sort of interesting glittery, like star-like type sky slivers in the cracks. Why would you not dig something up? Well, they see just, stuff in their house. It's obvious in the house. There's well, all right. these cracks as well. She even says it, it, it looked nicer. So they're aware of it, but still just like, not my problem. Right, my but she's, she, says problem. She's been, exactly. she says she's been pregnant for months now yeah. in their dream yeah. world. Anyone who's been pregnant for that long has been baby-proofing the house. So baby-proof your yard too. <laughs> <laughs> that baby's like, going to fall through. The pool. Put a fence around the yeah. pool. Something. Put some caution tape up. Maybe that's the reason Dream unalived Hector <laughs> is because he's like you're an irresponsible parent. Yeah. <laughs> I have a question though. Like, I have two questions. Does Dream think he's Rumpelstiltskin, like claiming this baby? Right. <laughs> that's my first question. My second is, I I I've watched this through twice, but I didn't really understand because I thought when somebody dies like we learned from death in an earlier episode that they kind of go to whatever place they believe in um mm -hmm. I, so what are the sunless lands like i completely miss that <laughs> i don't know where he's going uh what are the sun that may have been me bringing in something from the comic that they haven't 
necessarily said. I oh, mean, they, they like they. <laughs> They they talk about it a lot more in the comics, so they did mention it in the um, the sound of her wings episode, but okay. they don't kind of belabor. They don't talk about it like as much as what they do in the comic. So they use okay. that phrase, the sunless lands. It's just it's just a term that they you that dream and death use to describe just where people go. It's just the sunless like lands. after death. Yeah. Or af- yeah, afterlife. Sorry. Yeah, afterlife. Yeah, it's just the yeah. sunless lands. Yeah, and they say why? Okay. Why do why do humans fear the sunless land so much? Right. And it's, it's not like it's not like a place. Yeah, it's not like hell. It's not a where place. It's a real, it is the yeah. place. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's it is not like, like the same place that he banished Galt to. It's just right. a sort of yeah. general term for afterlife. Right. right. Well, Galt so was specifically okay, thank you. banished mm-hmm. to the darkness. Right. Like that's. Sunless right. Lands, I feel like, is not, like, capital S, capital L. Like, not necessarily, not a specific place, but lowercase, right. okay. anything that comes after the end of mortal existence is within the umbrella of the Sunless Lands, I think. The the way they talk about it, though, does feel a little bit like a cosmic junk drawer. I'm just like, where are you throwing these people? Mm. <laughs> yeah. Sunless Lands. I just Sunless Lands them. Yeah. I just thought it was bad. I, it's just bad. Uh, it's bad marketing, really. Like, stop calling it the Sunless Lands if you want True. people <laughs> to. Yeah. But what was your other question? What was the Rumpelstiltskin one? <laughs> what? Why does he get to claim this baby? Uh, like, that's so rude. Here's another. Re- here's another way men are trying to dictate women's bodies. It's like, oh, she w- the baby was conceived in the dreamland. It's my baby. I'm like, yeah. homie, I don't see you carrying that baby. Like, <laughs> calm down. He's so possessive of it. Uh, Morpheus, noted men's rights advocate. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to red pill everyone. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where because... So he's claiming it because it was created in the dreaming. And so anything created in the dreaming falls under dreams domain. The... But usually he is the one creating new things in the dreaming, right? right? Like all the dreams that you're having, he has established like a framework that you kind of, uh, this is how I've always envisioned it, that you kind of come into and that is your dream. That's the dream part of you that's existing inside that framework that he has created. That's why we have all these common nightmares that persist across all cultures, because these are things that dream has created for us Mm -hmm. to like experience as part of humanity. But Anything created belongs to him. If it's created in the dreaming, this baby was created in the dreaming. Something broke down where that's not supposed to happen. And the thing that didn't, you know, and that that's kind of the, the fact of the matter is, is like, if that baby had just like been born in the dreaming and stayed in the dreaming, then yeah, it's, it's a dream baby. The problem is, is that because of Rose, it is also a waking world baby. And that's where it becomes problematic mm. is that he is going to want the dreaming part of that baby but you can't like, there's no severance, right? You can't like, you know, you don't go down yes. the elevator and all of a sudden you have, <laughs> you have the dream baby. And then he goes up the elevator and forgets and He's like, you know, those things are connected. There's no elevator. So, you know, I think that's kind of, that's my take on what that, that, what that kind of like. Yeah. Out. We have to remember no, that, that the sense. dreaming is a, it's, it's political system is a monarchy, right? Like it's an absolute monarchy. Mm. And so anyone and anything there is a sort of servant of the realm, and that's Dream's world. So it probably makes perfect sense to him. Like, oh, you're conceived here? Yeah, you're one of mine, you know? Um, That said, it still could have been 
handled in a less dickish way probably than 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 dissolving her husband in front of her and then saying give me your baby um at some point uh and then you know there's no like there's no joanna constantine here who's comfortable with magic and knows the rules and can be like hey don't do this this is this is crappy you know there's no one to step in and stop dream here from because in that episode you know he's about to leave rachel to just like suffer and die and then she's able to mm-hmm. convince him that he has this moral obligation to uh kind of end her suffering in a compassionate way well there's no one to force compassion on dream in this in this scene and there's no there's no, not that much natural compassion to him either. Well, that's why I love that Rose then follows him into his own throne room. Mm. She's like, oh, hold on. That was really crappy what you did. And then him turning around going, how did you do that? <laughs> My inner sanctum. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a much more, this is a very active Rose. This is like Rose, Rose has repeatedly like actively used her powers for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. to do stuff. And that's... Yeah, and the comic is kind of like happening to her continuously. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I don't necessarily buy Rose's career goal as being a writer. Like, TV show Rose doesn't seem very writerly. Like, she's too active. She's too on top of things to want to be a writer. Whereas <laughs> comic book Rose is super passive and, like, keeping journals and just observing everything and things are just kind of happening to her like you can see her as a writer much Mm -hmm. more than very active very capable tv show rose excellent anybody have any other last thoughts including how the uh, corinthian does the hands clap so thank you i'm so i'm so admonished to be oh thank you so much that was great wasn't it it's like wow the humility on this guy just Mm. add it to the list whoa did, did you guys feel that was that was that a dream quake I'm just going to go walk five feet outside my door and make sure everything's okay. I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> Do you fondly remember blowing the dust out of a golden Nintendo cartridge to get it to work? Get the dust out of it. All right, here we go. Yes, let's get it. Now the screen's gray. Oh man. Or those long nights when you were up late fighting Ganon and you'd hear your mom coming downstairs. Hello? That's mom. Uh, pretend you're asleep. Wait, pause it. Pause it. Turn off the TV. Do you think she's gone? Make a sound. Hmm. I thought I heard two boys down here. Oh, well. Well, Ben and Pat are here to transport you back to those exhilarating moments as the Hyrule Podcasters. Join the two brothers each week as they play through Zelda games in Nintendo's legendary series. Episodes are filled with color commentary, lightly researched facts, personal anecdotes, and more. Hyrule Podcasters is available through Anchor on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Hyrule Podcasters on Facebook and Instagram at Hyrule Podcasters and on Twitter at Hyrule Podcasters. For our fourth scene, back at the convention, the Corinthian is making the rounds, chatting with folks, and talks briefly to someone that introduces themselves as the Boogeyman. The Corinthian then finds the convention host, Nimrod and the good doctor and tells them that the boogeyman died three years ago and that there is an attendee who is pretending to be the boogeyman. Gilbert and Rose arrive and begin searching for Jed. 
Gilbert visits various meeting rooms looking for Jed and hears some disturbing conversations. Ashley, what do you want to start with here? Oof. I, as soon as the quote-unquote boogeyman had turned around at the, the convention, I was like, really? Here, they just laid the ground rules down, my dude. Like, don't. And I appreciate that he initially intended on following them, he being the Corinthian. Um, and I, I liked the kind of small flirtation they had when at the, the mixer. Um, I thought that that was well done. But I, I do appreciate that this was the way to kind of insert this small little subplot. Uh, mm. that it was a, a serial killer that the Corinthian already knew about and possibly had dispatched the body of if he was so very certain that, that the boogeyman had in fact drowned. Um, and who knows how that will be unpacked, if it will be at all. But I did kind of like that background that we, we see some of the Corinthian's history on Earth being told in that in that way by him having the secret knowledge about certain serial killers and and who's pretending to be whom. Uh, and I, I love the look of delight on the good doctor Nimrod's face when the Corinthian invited them to join him in dispatching with this imposter. I thought that was very funny. Um, horrifying as far as the actual killing was concerned, like truly terrifying. But the the way that those two characters are kind of being played up in the presence of the Corinthian, I think that scene work is really good. So I enjoyed that bit of acting. Um, but generally speaking, I think that it was an odd sort of, if they're going to do it, I think they did it well. It just felt like an odd sub subplot to try to get Jed to see something horrific. I feel like there were a number of ways where Jed could have witnessed something horrific and then been like, Oh my gosh, I need to run. Corinthians horrible. Uncle Corey's the worst, but um, you know, it just, it, there were moments where it felt like a little contrived, but at the same time, I think with what they did with it, it was pretty good. I keep going back and forth on this little subplot. I like like it, and then I don't like it the more I think about it. Bex, how about you? How do you feel about that subplot? Yeah, I think um, because uh, Uncle Corey kind of gave that insight to like, oh no, he definitely drowned. I just, there's a couple of... There, there are multiple times within the show where I've chalked it up to like, oh, this is a comic book thing like that I won't get. And so I'm sure it's relevant and they may explore or they may not. So I think that's that's kind of how I treated that that plot is that, you know, there's something going on that's beyond my understanding and for a viewer just coming into the show. Um, so that's kind of what I thought of that. But um, your boy, Ashley, he's got his flirt game on hard. In this, this scene, <laughs> he just everybody's, never turns it off. It. Everybody's very horned up for the Corinthian. Just every face that, like, <laughs> yes. like everyone who looks at him is just like, ah, you know, and like, just everyone yeah. is into him. He can do anything he wants there. Yeah. Well, there Absolutely. does in the next scene, but we can just talk about it when he like whispers to the fake boogeyman. Mm -hmm. There is definitely something kind of. I thought watching it, they were trying to show us that something magical was going on there. Um, I don't know if you all kind of pulled that, like from that scene, 
it does like this like zoom in so you just see like his mouth and his ear and the screen gets a little kind of like shaky mm. and fuzzy huh. and that to me was like an indication of like he like that is like he's a you know he's a major arcana right like he has the ability to do magical things was kind of my take on it and i thought that oh. was one of i thought he i thought that's something that he does like you know whether that's like just you know he cranks up like the pheromones to like a hundred percent or it's something huh. like actually magical that's happening there that was that was kind of I, my take on that i just took it as like the magic of the female gaze <laughs> mm, mm, mm. got it yeah i think he's just uh, a, a pretty smooth dude personally <laughs> who can pull stuff like that off um and I mean, really, isn't flirting kind of magic in a way? You know? <laughs> there you go. Um, so stupid. I'm sorry. I mean, charisma <laughs> is one of the stat no. blocks in D anD D. So that's, that's true. true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Sean, what were your thoughts on some of the uh, panels that we got to see? Little inspiration for uh, for next year. <laughs> yeah, I uh, uh, for for our conference that we put on, probably uh, you know don't want anyone talking about how to profit off murder or the divine inspiration for their killing habit or anything like that. So no, but I do think it worked. Uh, it was worked pretty well to have Gilbert going around from panel to panel and, and like realizing that something is terribly off with this. I was kind of, you know, able to put myself in Gilbert's shoes. Like you're like walking around, you're going in these different rooms and you're just, hearing things that are just like off and you can dismiss it a couple times, but then, you know, somebody eventually is just, he's just like, Oh, I kill people. By the way, I kill lots of people. You know, I kind of wish it was a little bit more of a progression of him of like things clicking into place increasingly over time. But it seemed more like him just being like, huh? And like caught off guard with each panel he went into. Um, so, so I, I enjoyed that scene. I liked that we got the little looks into each panel. I liked seeing Gilbert reactions. I wish each one built a little bit more off the previous one. I think that would have strengthened the impact of that sequence. But it was still it was still enjoyable uh, enjoyable to see there. I also thought that there was one. Okay, so coming back really quickly, I'll. I'll I'll come back to comic stuff one more time. I don't want to rely too much on comic stuff, but I they didn't give any additional explanation to the boogeyman in the comic, but I wonder, I would have to look this up, but I wonder if it was at all connected to like a serial killer that could exist in comics. For instance, the family man, who was the original guest of honor, was a comic book character who died in an issue of Hellblazer, uh, the John Constantine oh. series. So that was kind of an in-universe explanation for why they needed a new guest of honor. When they said that the that the boogeyman died, drowned in a swamp in Louisiana, I immediately wondered, like, was this an Alan Moore character from his Swamp Thing run, oh. which took place in the swamps of Louisiana? But I don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. I would have to check that out. Mm -hmm. One line that 
And the last comic thing I'll say is one line that I really missed was uh, where Funland is talking about how he goes to a unnamed theme park to find kids to, quote, play with, right? So creepy. Um, but in the comic, there's an additional line where he implies that the theme park management cover up what he's doing at these parks in the interest of not causing panic and not, you know, driving away business. And they left that out of it. So it was interesting to me to see in a, in a episode that was so reliant on dialogue from the book, why leave this little bit out? I don't know. <laughs> Big amusement. Is out there, uh, you know, making sure <laughs> we don't catch on to them. I mean, the thing is, is just like I think when this comic was written in nineteen, probably nineteen ninety, I think is probably when it came out. That's a like perceivably that could have happened. That you know someone was doing that. There is no way that in twenty twenty two, if a kid went missing from a amusement park, that amusement park is done. Like it's over. Like and everyone's gonna know about it. Like there's just too many people doing too much talking too much on the internet for that to ever to not to come out so i almost think it was um what's that word that i anachronistic right mm -hmm. it would have been like that's no that's ridiculous like everyone's gonna know if some little kid goes missing at an amusement park would be my take at least i could be wrong okay though. okay i'll buy I that <laughs> so let's move on gilbert catches the eye of the corinthian and they exchange a meaningful look the Corinthian then invites Philip, the fake boogeyman, to have a private drink with him. Rose then learns that she already has a room at the hotel and that Gilbert had to leave to go home unexpectedly without telling her and just leaving a message at the front desk. In the dreaming, we learn that Gilbert is Fiddler's Green and he has returned to tell Morpheus all about the Corinthian. Bex, we're starting with you on this one. Yeah, oof. the whole drink scene, I think, with the Corinthian uh, and the fake boogeyman is just, it's, I don't know, that whole like bar scene is really, really tense, um, right, rightfully so. Um, and, and I also kind of backtracking, though, I wondered, can, can dreams and or nightmares just recognize each other, even if they are? in a human form? Like, is it kind of like the vibes you give out? Because I, you know, I understand why I, I feel like I understand why Gilbert would know who the Corinthian is because of the sunglasses. And because I really guess it's just because of the sunglasses, but it seems, and because he's been, I don't know, like how do they know that each other are a part of like dreamland. I think it's a small world, right? Like they're like from the a previous episode where they where Lucien is doing a census of the population of the dreaming. I think they only said it was like 3000 or something like that. So, I would imagine if you're like one of the big shots of the dreaming, like the Corinthian, like Fillers Green, you kind of know who each other are even if you're not close. That's how I took it. My other take is my other take is you know, and, and Bex, maybe this might be a new thing for you, is like, 
you know when you're around another dog person. Yeah, that's true. Like, you just get that vibe, yeah. right? Or you're around like, <laughs> oh, this person doesn't like, oh, you're around like a cat person. Or like, oh, you know, you just get that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, right? Sometimes you just find your people and you're like, oh, I didn't know you were my people, but you are my people. I think it's that plus, yeah. like, they are magic users mm. or not, they're not magic users. They are magic. They are like, they, they, I mean, or they are just from the dreaming. I just feel like there is something there that, you know, you're, you know, ner- you know, something is connecting there. Right. Cause those are, they're not people like, right. They look like people, but they are not people. Right. And I think that might be have something to do with it. See, I, I had interpreted it. The look on the Corinthians face was like, like if I saw my brother or even like my cousin, at an event that I'm clearly popular at, and I'm like, they know dirt on me. They better <laughs> shut their mouths and not make me look bad around my friends. Cause I'm cool here. And I don't want <laughs> you stinking sure. up. I don't want you yucking my yeah. yum. That's the look on his face that registered for me was like yeah. almost like family <laughs> tiff vibes to go with like the Lucian mm-hmm. and Morpheus right. being mom and dad <laughs> sort of situation. That felt like two siblings being like, you tell mom and dad, <laughs> I'm going to eat your eyeballs. Yeah, screen. that makes sense because what I picked up with what the Corinthian looked like was almost like a do I know you sort of vibe. Um, but I think, actually your your explanation mm. makes a lot more sense where it's kind of like, we haven't seen each other in a while. What the hell are you doing here? And, you know, stay out of my lane. Right, because why would he be there? R- right. right. Why would he be there? Like, you know, right. I think the Corinthian knows that Rose is a vortex. Gilbert doesn't know that she is a vortex. So the Corinthian is probably starting to put things together. Gilbert's like, wait, why would you be here? Like, what, like, what is like, why are you here? Yeah. yeah. But I also think Bex, that's a good point mm-hmm. because he, it could, because he doesn't seem to have a sense of urgency that you would have if he were worried about Fiddler's Green being like a spy in the waking world, like Matthew is, and is going to go rush back mm-hmm. and tell dream. He's got a curiosity and he seems to like follow him a little bit and like want to Ooh. say something, but he's not like chasing him down. Like he's willing to divert his attention back to fake boogeyman, which does not seem like any sort of immediate threat. So I don't think he recognizes, right. he might not even recognize, he might sense on some level that this is some, something is weird here, that this is a being who not like these other beings, but maybe he doesn't exactly recognize that it's another dream. Or maybe like you're at the mall and you're not supposed to be, and then you run into your brother who's at the mall and he's not supposed to be, but like you see each other across the food court uh-huh. and you're just like, same. Whoa. Okay. Well, we obviously aren't going to like. We're not going to say anything, right? But he goes home and snitches on you. Mm. That's what kind of happened here. <laughs> yep. True. The other thing I wanted to call out here is that I thought it was a great moment. Dreams just looked so heartbroken with Gilbert's like betrayal. Like he looked so wounded. I actually felt yeah. bad for him even though he was definitely being a terrible person earlier but he's just like he's just like what you you come on what does nobody like me around here like right it was like yeah. the first crack into self-awareness yeah because he calls him the heart of the dreaming right it's like your most loyal your most dependable buddy is just like actually really not that you know not into you at all and like not willing to stick by you like oh that was a sad moment yeah I I think like if you're going with mm-hmm. the family analogy, the fiddler's green is like the peacekeeper of the family, and so of course he's gonna kind of see that bigger picture and mm-hmm. 
and understand the point of view that um, Morpheus is coming from. So I think him having made his own decision to do something for himself is is very like out of character, quote unquote, for him. My buddy, like you're my guy. And it's he just wanted to go out and see what it was like. Oh, he's so cute. I love I love Gilbert. Yeah. And it's nice to get this perspective on the other dreams uh, who are there like this. So many of them so far have expressed this like hunger to experience what actual life is like. Right. Like they're playing pretend basically for these dreamers each night they're participating in their dreams but they're not actually experiencing the life of it so the fact that this is a sort of common desire among uh the the beings of the dreaming is an interesting approach to take yes it is all right let's take a look at our last scene the corinthian nimrod and the good doctor are in the process of killing philip when Jed sees them, he runs away from the Corinthian and straight into the arms of Funlan, who leads him up to his room where it is, quote, safe, end quote. Rose manages to intercept Jed with Funland, and they're finally reunited. But it is short-lived as Funland chases them down the hall. Just as he is about to hurt them, the Corinthian shows up and kills Funland and lets the kids know that they are, quote, safe with him, end quotes. Sean? I was surprised that the Corinthian wiping slobber off his face after making out with Philip, the fake boogeyman, was like grosser than the actual murder. <laughs> You know, it, 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 it made like wet sounds and everything. He's like, ah, that was the actual murder was pretty, uh, pretty restrained in its in the the sort of graphic elements of it. But that that wiping the slobber off is just, oh man, okay. <laughs> Another thing I liked about this set, well, I, I don't know that I liked that last one. I thought it was effectively creepy, but I wouldn't say I liked it. The interaction between Lucien and Fielder's Green, uh, I thought was pretty good. I liked that, like, Gilbert had to be caught up on all of this. You kind of forget that, like, not everyone is seeing from our perspective and knows everything that's going on. So it was nice to see, like, his reaction at learning all of these things. And it continues the progress of Morpheus's sort of character development, right? Fielder's Green pointing out that, that, you know, maybe Dream has changed so much. He kind of admitted he was wrong. It was very nearly an apology, right? So after seeing pretty much nothing but the bad side of Dream throughout this episode, uh, we get this little bit where it's tilting back the other way. And I love maintaining that tension of like, are you going to be, uh, you mm. know, are you going to try to be like a decent, compassionate being? Or are you just going to be like cold... Uh, rules-driven dream. So I like that, that they keep that ball in the air, and I hope that continues uh, throughout the show. I also thought Funland chasing Jed and Rose through the halls was pretty creepy. I thought that was effective. I thought that was kind of nightmarish, like this big, massive dude just barreling through the hallways after you through a hotel. That seemed um, legitimately nightmarish. 
back because I wanted to pitch something over to you that Sean said. What were your feelings on Morpheus's apology to Lucien? Like, how would you rate it on the scale, you know, on the apology scale? How would I rate it overall for an actual apology? I'm a little harsh. Fr- from the entity of dream, you know, from an en- from like oh, an endless okay. entity, all those kind of things, right? Oh, yeah. Because if it's a normal apology, I'm going to put it at like a four. But for him, I feel like it's an <laughs> eight, maybe an 8.5. All right. All right. Um, I think he kind of gives that kind of little, you know, looking up from your, like your eyes and your eyebrows being like, you know, maybe I don't know everything all the time. Um, he's kind of sheepish about it. Um, and he's kind of like, you already know, like you, you're pretty, you know, you're pretty cool. Um, but yeah, you, I think you see some character growth, I think. Yeah. in this one. And then, yeah, I, I think that he's working on those muscles that are very weak and, you know, that is a good thing. I'm not going to fault him for exercising, his ability to apologize. <laughs> That's my official statement. <laughs> this is really my work bleeding into this show. Is like, no, like there's some genuine growth in there. We're going to celebrate it. We're going to focus on that. We're going to do the next steps. So, yeah. <laughs> I like that positive behavior intervention right there. That was, that's good. That's what I want to do. Reinforce, reinforce. <laughs> Oh man, uh, Ashley, what what did you have out of this scene? Yeah, well, just I mean, speaking of of Dream and his lackluster apologies, um, I just it kind of ties back into that last scene that we talked about with Fiddler's Green and Dream and Dream saying you were the heart of the dreaming, and Fiddler's mm-hmm. Green was like, no, you were the heart of the dreaming, and you left, uh, which really cut. Man, I was not prepared for that. Um, but again, it comes back to Morpheus really having to assess what his role in the dreaming is and what his responsibilities are and what that looks like. Uh, and I just like that that conversation keeps Mm -hmm. coming up over and over and over again Mm -hmm. as to what he's responsible for and what those responsibilities look like in his role and who's he, who he is responsible to. And the fact that, yeah, just because he's the lord of this epic realm doesn't mean that he is he to effectively be so needs to be cold and callous and aloof and just sort of like manage resource management, but in fact actually has to have some emotional intelligence to do this job effectively and that it is a job. It's not just this like cosmic responsibility. So I do, I do like that. We keep bringing that in and rolling that in and and really, I mean, looking at all of the roles of all of the characters and what their responsibilities are to one another, I think is a really great conversation. But speaking of, uh, this this chase scene with Funland truly had me terrified. I wasn't sure where it was going to end, but I I got kind of panicky when they hit that locked door. I was like, why is it locked? Why is it locked? It probably just goes to a stairwell. Th- those are never locked. Why can't they leave? Um, so I was, I was quite anxious. Um, even though I kind of had a, a sense that he would be cut down because the Corinthian had marked his territory, not via licking, but he marked <laughs> his territory early with regard to Rose and Jed. Um so when he delivers those lines, like, you're safe with me, um, I it's so complex because we've seen really oddly sort of familial 
gentle, warm behavior from the Corinthian that I would have never anticipated. I would have always expected a slight tinge of menace coming from him, even when he's being friendly. Kind of like that Big Bad Wolf song that we had heard, you know, at the end of the other episode. Um, but we've seen him being kind of like we've described this weird kind of fun uncle where you let your guard down a little bit, but not in this, not in the sense of, oh, he's suave and attractive. So he's luring them into his trap. It's like, no, he just doesn't seem to be interested in killing kids. That's a good thing, but it's also odd behavior for a nightmare. Um, and so then for him to deliver this line, you're safe with me. I almost kind of believe him in a in a weird way of like, I just don't think he's interested in harming either of them. He just wants to get what he wants and then he can go about his business again, which is eating the eyeballs of his lovers. But it's just, it was an odd phenomenon to watch that line and hear that line being delivered and go, I, he's probably telling the truth in this case. And that feels weird. We don't even know exactly what mm. he wants with Rose, right? He wants something with her, but it's never spelled out. Right, no. Um, you know, hopefully he'll have Mm-mm. time in the next episode to kind of lay it out for us. Bex, did you have any other things on this last scene that you wanted to talk about? No, I think that um, you guys covered it perfectly. And I hate chase scenes. So that, that Funland chase was so hard to watch i yeah that was really the momentum of that was really building and it stressed me out and ashley i think you're totally right i think it's weird when you see him come and you're like oh thank god the corinthians here and you're like wait what <laughs> like isn't he supposed to be our, our villain so i i also appreciated kind of that that layer to his his character as well all right so let's hop over to our final thoughts. Uh, so, Sean, we'll start with you. What's one thing you just wanted to make sure that everybody definitely knew you had in your notes? Okay, I'll give you one thing and a couple bonus things. <laughs> so, quick quick points. First thing is, I love the Serial Convention logo. I thought that was some great design there from those very talented serial killers because it was like red, white, and blue. <laughs> Right. And then it was these O's like cereal O's that were falling into milk, but the O's were red. So they Mm -hmm. also kind of bring to mind these like droplets of blood. I thought it was very clever design work uh, on on the show's part. Um, Jed, little Jetty, I love you. I believe in you. I believe you'll nail that American accent one of these days. Um, I know you're struggling, brother, but I, it can happen for you. I believe it. In the last episode, it'll be a convincing American accent. And then finally, um, to the Sandman show, please stop using the music cues. Just stop all of the music cues. Please, I hate the skeleton song so much. Uh, it's like an 80s movie where the songs like comment directly on what's happening in the in the show and um they're the worst songs i've ever heard so just let's just go with score from here on out (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't i don't disagree about the music choices because it's 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 become a distraction i mean even for my husband who's watching the show with me uh he 
it, with the big, big Bad Wolf song from the last episode, had like Googled it thinking maybe it was going to clue him in to something that was happening in the show. And I was like, no, it's just a song they picked. Like, yeah, thematically it works, I guess, on some <laughs> level. But there are no clues. These aren't like great picks and they're not giving you any sort of secret knowledge. I'm sorry. So it's, it, it ultimate, ultimately be, becomes a disappointment. Um, the other final thought that I have is with regard to Philip slash the fake boogeyman in that, again, you have someone who is a blogger feels a little antiquated in this case, just with how quickly social media develops. But, um, again, like it feels like a really big missed opportunity to not just make these serial killers influencers in some scope, as opposed to these like weird sort of business card trading professionals, you know, actually, actually update it to today's day and age i mean for the love of god tiktok exists you could have done something fun with that it would have been horrifying but like it would have been interesting for an episode to have played into that yeah exactly you could have you could have easily (laughs) brought that in i love that idea or even just like the entrepreneurial like tech investors have them like thinking they're at the vanguard of like the the future of human existence and just be like so wrapped up in their own mythology right but actually doing these very destructive Mm. like very you know very small things but to have this myth built up about themselves like i that would have been that would have been great there really were a lot of other places to go with this i think you're absolutely right sorry to jump in yeah and so no you're good I'm, i'm glad that you agree because i I think because so much of my world professionally right now is social media and my husband is in like the entrepreneurial creative direction, like independent businessman space that I see a lot of the, I mean, sometimes at these conferences, borderline psychotic behavior. So it just feels like it fits really well. But I thought maybe it was just like, well, that's just that world. It's, it doesn't really, but I'm glad that, that you agree. Cause I just, it, again, it feels like it mm. fits almost too well to the point where it feels silly that that was something that was missed on their part. And Bex. Yeah. I think the the only other thing that I thought about is um, I love how much Matthew peace keeps between mom and dad in this episode in the beginning where he's like, I, you got to talk to him even though he's being a jerk. And Lucian's like, I don't want to. And I, I just relate to, you know, this bird. <laughs> like, I feel like, I feel like we've all been Matthew at one point or another being like, oh, all right, I'm going to have to interfere with this a little bit so that we can get what we need to get done, done. Um, I just really love Matthew. I think he's super fun. So I really, really enjoyed him in this episode. And that's about it, I think. And I've managed to forget that that's Patton Oswalt each time. Yeah. I'm not like immediately, like the first time I was like, oh, I know that voice. But now I'm just kind of, that's Matthew. So, mm-hmm. all right. So Episode nine, The Collectors, it seemed like Across the Board was an episode that all four of us uh, really enjoyed. Uh, We did think that they missed the mark on a few things, including some of the musical cues and maybe um, being a bit too honest when it comes to capturing the original comic in what they were trying to do, uh, especially with some of the line reads and uh, Nimrod's opening joke. We've also really enjoyed the Corinthian just across the board, which is so interesting because he's not like he doesn't play this role in the comics. And it's just such an interesting use of this character to have this kind of be the main antagonist throughout. And I, you know, at first, like 
was a little concerned of having this new person in there and this new entity, but I think it worked so well. And you can tell by us like gushing over the Corinthian to the point that I think Ashley said that when the Corinthian said that you're safe with me, I think Ashley felt a little safe too in that moment. <laughs> I think that's something that we should all take to heart. I did. I did. <laughs> you did. Um, and I, I really feel like with this penultimate episode, the, well, the original penultimate episode, they really set up the story very nicely to conclude. We have kind of all the factions. They all know what's going on, where everybody's at. And we're all just really excited to see what happens with episode 10. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Sandman Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller. Only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story.